You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on the second day of July 2012. I'd like to welcome everyone back to the podcast and invite you all, as always, to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as interviews, articles, and videos that I've created and conducted over the past five years. Just a couple of notes to get into before the episode proper today. First of all, uh, for those of you who are watching this video, you will now know that just like the radio program is now being made available as a downloadable video, so too will the podcast be made available as a video when, if, and as uh, possible. So once again, that will be available either in the show notes for today's episode or in the video tab of CorbettReport.com at CorbettReport.com slash video. So please check that out if uh, if you're interested. Of course, this means that for people who are subscribed to the Everything feed and are getting all of my uh, media as it comes out, you will also be receiving the videos for the radio show and for the podcast, which is a large file to download. So if you're not interested in receiving that, you would probably be best served by going to corporatereport.com slash subscribe and subscribing to the podcast, the interviews, and the radio feed separately rather than the Everything feed. Of course, you can subscribe to anyone or any combination of the feeds in order to come up with whatever you uh, you personally want on an ongoing basis. And if you do want the videos, then by all means, subscribe to the Everything feed. And secondly, I just want to let everyone know that I was a guest recently on Existential Radio, Exis 10, the number 10, Shul Radio. Uh, the link to that, again, will be in the show notes for this episode. And we talked uh, quite a bit about uh, what was going on last week with Obamacare and Holder and, and other issues that were in the news. So thanks to Ben from Existential Radio for having me on, and I hope you'll go and check that out. But on that note, once again, we have a ton of information to get through, so let's get straight into the episode. Testing one, two, three, four. Jeremy Bernstein, tape, November 27, side A. Born July 26, 1928, New York City. My father is a doctor. One sister, Barbara, married. Two children, lives in New Jersey, six years younger. Her husband is a lawyer. I was taught to play chess at the age of 12, but did not play seriously until about age of 17, when I joined the Marshall Chess Club in New York on West 10th Street, between 5th and 6th Avenue. Okay. Whatever came along. Did you have any particular intellectual interests as a child? remember? I mean, were you an avid reader or... Uh... Uh, no. I, uh, uh, I had uh, few intellectual interests as a child. I uh, uh, was a school misfit and considered, uh, you know, reading a book, um, schoolwork. And I, I don't think I read a book for pleasure until after I graduated high school. Uh, well, what were you? What were you doing? I mean, your, well, your misfit. Uh... Well, I had I had one thing I think that uh, that per, that perhaps uh, helped me uh, get over being a misfit, a school misfit, and that is that um, I became interested in photography uh, about the same time, twelve or thirteen, and I think that um, if you um, uh, get involved in any kind of uh, Problem problem solving in depth on almost anything, it uh, is surprisingly similar to uh, uh, problem solving of anything. You know, uh, I started out by just you know getting a camera and learning how to take pictures and learning how to print pictures and learning how to build a dark room and learning how to do all the technical things and uh, so on and so on. And then finally trying to find out how you could uh, sell pictures and become a, you know, it, would it be possible to be a professional photographer? And it was a case of over a period of, say, from the age of 13 to uh, 17, uh, you might say, uh, going through step by step by myself without anybody really helping me, the problem solving of being becoming a photographer. And I found that, um, I think in looking back, that uh, the... Uh, this particular thing about problem solving is something that uh, schools generally don't teach you, 
and that uh, if you can develop uh, a kind of generalized approach to problem solving, that uh, it's surprising how it helps you in anything. Welcome to episode 233 of the Corporate Report podcast, The Kubrick Question. What we've just been listening to is an excerpt from a very interesting and very rare extended hour-plus-long audio interview that was conducted by Jeremy Bernstein with director Stanley Kubrick back in November of 1966. And as I say, it's an extremely rare thing to have such a lengthy audio documentary uh, interview with Stanley Kubrick, who was famous for being reclusive and difficult to talk to. Uh, There are relatively few interviews and very few of any extended form. So I would certainly suggest that you go and take a listen to the entire interview so you can learn more about Kubrick in his own words, his life, and how he came into directing. And I think there are a number of very interesting things that we can learn about not only Kubrick, but about success in general from an interview like that. Uh, Certainly, I think some of the principles that uh, Kubrick is alluding to there will not be unfamiliar to people who are familiar with the ultimate history lesson with uh, John Taylor Gatto, for example, uh, expressing the idea that we have to absolutely become autodidacts and we have to teach ourselves. And in the process of teaching ourselves how to solve problems, we will in fact learn skills that will apply in any field and in any challenge that might come our way. Certainly words to live by. So in that respect alone, I think uh, definitely an interesting excerpt, but also, as I say, interesting because Stanley Kubrick was so reclusive and did grant so few extended interviews like that, talking at length and in detail about his uh, personal life. So uh, certainly an interesting part of the documentary record on this reclusive figure. So why does this matter? Why is this important for the Corbett Report? Well, listeners of the Corbett Report, I think, will not have to be introduced to the idea that Stanley Kubrick, this movie director, was in fact someone who had quite interesting things to say on a number of subjects, to put it mildly, if only because of the number of times he has been referenced so far in the Corbett Report podcast, going back to episode 88, You Are Being Programmed, in which we listen to that fascinating excerpt from the Mystery Babylon series by Bill Cooper talking about the opening of uh, 2001, talking about the Dawn of Man sequence, which I think Bill Cooper does an absolutely brilliant job of breaking down shot by shot and explaining exactly what is happening, not in the uh, literal visual sense, but in the mystery religion sense. Uh, Absolutely fascinating uh, expose going on there. So if you haven't heard that, I suggest you go back to episode 88 and listen to that. We've also talked, uh, mentioned and referenced uh, Kubrick's work in episode 135 and episode 175, talking respectively about sodium fluoride and how inevitably when someone brings up the question of sodium fluoride and its its health effects in uh, in mixed company someone will inevitably reference Dr. Strangelove and the purity of essence uh, routine as a way of trying to deflect the conversation and satirizing it. So a very interesting bit of programming there from Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. We also referenced that very same movie back in episode 175 when we were talking about the Rand Corporation. And of course, it is by no means a secret that the, the concept of Dr. Strangelove, which for those of you out there who haven't yet seen this movie, is about the a prospect of complete nuclear annihilation in a Cold War-type scenario playing out with both sides uh, following the mutually assured assured destruction principle to its inevitable conclusion. Well, that came from uh, from Kubrick's extensive research of the types of things that people in, for example, the Rand Corporation were writing about in the early 60s and late 50s talking about thermonuclear war. One of the uh, the key persons in that respect being uh, Herman Kahn, who wrote a book on thermonuclear war, which Kubrick referenced extensively in his production of uh, Dr. Strangelove. So certainly Dr. Strangelove was based on very real uh, ideas that had been floating around and being kicked around by the the Rand Corporation and other elite insiders who have been directing American foreign policy for decades and decades. So a very interesting, um, interesting history that we've at least touched on briefly a couple of times in the podcast. So today what we're going to do is flesh this out in some more detail because 
I keep coming back to Kubrick's works, and I will admit right off the top that I personally am a fan of his work insofar as I don't think there's another director in the history of cinema who has quite as detailed a, a vision, a visual sense, and a, a visual style as, as Kubrick. Immediately, I think any of his works are immediately understandable as Kubrickian, uh, whatever that might might mean. And he does an absolutely incredible job of, of really fleshing out some very deep psychological and philosophical concepts in, in his works that, uh, that I don't think have been reproduced by any other filmmaker. So in that sense, at the very least, I think he was a brilliant artist. But what side of this uh, this game was he playing, and uh, whose whose team was he on? I don't think that's nearly as evident as as the other questions about his mere talent as a filmmaker. So that's something I'd like to start exploring today, and we're going to do that by taking a dip into some of the various movies he's produced, looking for some of the hidden meanings that have been hidden there, I think uh, quite literally, and I think very few people who actually study Kubrick's works would dispute the idea that there are hidden meanings to his works. But there may be some disputes as to what those hidden meanings are and uh, and really what the purpose of putting them in there is. So let's start looking at some of those ideas. And to do that, we're going to go back to Dr. Strangelove, which I say we've already mentioned a couple of times on this podcast, but we'll, we'll mention it again for a very interesting production note that comes out of a documentary called Inside the Making of Dr. Strangelove, which was included as a uh, bonus with the 40th anniversary DVD edition of this movie where they talked to various people who were involved in the production about some of the interesting parts of the, the production of this movie, including a very interesting detail about the B-52 bomber, which of course plays quite a central role in the film, and which was, at the time of the film, the production of the film, still something of a national security uh, secret. It was very much classified information, the specific technical details of the B-52, which meant Stanley's and his art director's ability to reproduce a set that looks like a B-52 was greatly limited to what was available in the public record, which uh, created an interesting conundrum for someone who is quite famously was one of the most uh, incredible sticklers for detail in the history of filmmaking. And that's, uh, I think, something that's been well established in almost everything that's ever been written and said about Stanley Kubrick, that he was an incredible stickler for detail. And so it was that he came head on with the task of trying to recreate the inside of a B-52 bomber, despite never having actually seen one, or... At least that's the story. So let's take a look at this, uh, just this short excerpt from that Inside the Making of Dr. Strangelove talking about the creation of the B-52 set for the film. Peter was brilliant. And because I more or less handed that whole interior over to Peter, and he spent hours and hours on switches and morning lights, which fascinated uh, Stanley. Merton's designs are realistic enough to cause concern in unexpected circles. The publicity people invited some American Air Force personnel to, to look at the shooting we did. And they literally went white when they saw the inside of the B-52 because it said it was absolutely correct, even to the little black box, which was a CRM. So the next day I got a memo from Stanley. He hopes that I've got all my research from legal sources or from justifiable uh, sources because otherwise I and he could be in serious trouble uh, with a possible investigation by the uh, FBI. What an interesting little tidbit, wouldn't you say? The idea that they were able to create the set so perfectly, so amazingly uh, rendered with such exquisite detail and such correct detail that members of the U.S. Air Force were actually stunned at what they had created, right down to the, the tiny details of what you could barely even make out on camera, were actually pretty much correct, and, uh, and Stanley himself was worried that they were going to be investigated for having uh, breached national security by being able to recreate that set. A very interesting little tidbit, and there are a lot of things to be made from that, but that is where a lot of people, including Jay Widener, have, uh, have built a very much larger case for the involvement be between Stanley Kubrick and the U.S. government generally. 
and I'm sure pretty much everyone knows where this is going, but let's flesh it out in some detail, talking about how in Jay Widener's theory, for example, that stunning, uh, amazing recreation of the B-52 and it, the incredible attention to detail that it denoted caught the attention of some very important people in the U.S. government and started a relationship that would culminate in Stanley Kubrick and NASA working together on the moon landing. It is uncanny the way that the production of 2001 A Space Odyssey parallels the Apollo program. The film production started in 1964 and went on to the release of 2001 A Space Odyssey in 1968. Meanwhile, the Apollo program also began in 1964 and culminated with the first moon landings on July 20, 1969. It is also very interesting to note that the scientist Frederick Ordway was working both for NASA and the Apollo program and was also Kubrick's top science advisor for 2001 A Space Odyssey. Once he had negotiated the deal, Stanley got to work. The most pressing problem for Kubrick in 1964 was to figure out how to make the shots on the ground, on the surface of the moon, look realistic. He had to make the scenes look wide open and expansive, like it was really done on the moon and not in some studio backlot. No one knows how many things he tried, but eventually Kubrick settled on doing the entire thing with a cinematic technique called front screen projection. It is in the use of this cinematic technique that the fingerprints of Kubrick can be seen all over the NASA Apollo photographic and video material. But what is front screen projection? Kubrick did not invent the process, but there is no doubt that he perfected it. Front screen projection is a cinematic device that allows scenes to be projected behind the actors so that it appears in the camera as if the actors are moving around on the set provided by the front screen projection. The process came into fruition when the 3M company invented a material called Scotchlight. This was a screen material that was made up of hundreds of thousands of tiny glass beads. These beads were highly reflective. In the front screen projection process, the Scotchlight screen would be placed at the back of the soundstage. The plane of the camera lens and the Scotchlight screen had to be exactly 90 degrees apart. A projector would project the scene onto the Scotchlight screen through a mirror and the light would go through a beam splitter which would pass the light into the camera. An actor could stand in front of the Scotchlight screen and he would appear to be inside the projection. Today Hollywood's magicians use green screens and computers for special effects and so the front screen projection system has gone the way of the adding machine and the Model T. But for its time, especially in the 1960s, Nothing worked better than front screen projection for that realistic look that would be needed both for the eight-man scenes in 2001 A Space Odyssey and the faked Apollo moon landings. To see how front screen projection looks on the screen, let's examine the eight-man scenes at the beginning of Kubrick's film 2001 A Space Odyssey. One has to remember that the early scenes in 2001 with the actors in ape costumes were all done on a sound stage. None of what you were seeing in the ape-man scenes at the beginning of 2001 was actually shot outside. The scenes that surround the ape-men in 2001 are actually slides of a desert being projected onto the Scotchlight screen standing at the rear of the set. In order to create these desert backgrounds, Kubrick sent a photographic team to Spain to shoot 8x10 ectochrome slides. These slides were then projected via the front screen projection system onto the Scotchlight screen. The actors in ape costumes stood in front of the screen, acting out the script. If you watch 2001 on DVD, you can actually see the seams of the screen, occasionally behind the gyrating apes. Kubrick was doing front screen projection on such a huge and grand fashion that the technicians were forced to sew together many screens of Scotchlight so that Kubrick could create the vastness needed for the ape scenes to be believable. In this scene, taken from an early scene in 2001, you can see the seams in the blue sky if you look closely. This next image is one that I have processed through a graphics program. In this processing, I have increased the gamma and increased the contrast. Now we can clearly see the seams and the stitching of the Scotchlight front projection screen in the sky. To get the perspective correct, one has to realize that the Scotchlight screen is right behind the rocky outcropping set, which was built on a soundstage. The lines on the screen are the flaws in the Scotchlight screen. These flaws in the screen give the sky a peculiar geometry when the image is properly processed to reveal the front projection Scotchlight screen. 
Let's show another example. Here is a scene from the waterhole scene from 2001. This is the same image, but again with the gamma and contrast increased. While watching 2001 with the scenes of the eight men, one can begin to see the telltale fingerprints that always reveal when the front projection screen system is used. It should be emphasized that the sets that surround the eight men in the movie are real. Those are real rocks, whether paper mache or real, that surround the eight men. But behind the fabricated rocks on the set, the desert scene is being projected via the front screen projector. One of the ways that you can tell the front screen system is being used is that the bottom horizon line between the actual set and the background scotch light screen has to be blocked. Kubrick strategically located rocks and other things near the bottom of the scene in order to hide the projection screen. In other words, the camera and the viewers would see the bottom of the background projection screen if it were not blocked in some fashion. As part of the trick, it becomes necessary to place things in between the screen and the set to hide the bottom of the screen. I have photoshopped a line differentiating the set and the background scotch light front projection screen. Please note how everything is in focus, from the pebbles on the ground in the set to the desert mountains beyond. You will see that hiding the bottom of the scotch light screen is always being done when the front screen projection system is being used in 2001 A Space Odyssey. Hiding the screen is one of the fingerprints. It is evidence of its use. Just like the stage magician who needs the long sleeves of his costume to hide the mechanism of his tricks, so too Kubrick needed to hide the mechanism of his trick behind the carefully placed horizon line between set and screen. Here's another example from 2001. And here is the same image with my Photoshop line separating the set As you will see before this film is finished, this same fingerprint, this same evidence is clearly seen in all of the NASA Apollo stills and video images. It is this fingerprint that reveals not only that NASA faked the Apollo missions, but how they faked them. Now, that comes from part one of Jay Widener's documentary, Kubrick's Odyssey, which I will recommend to you, and I, I do suggest you watch in its entirety, because there is much more to the theory than that, and it is fleshed out in much greater detail, so I will not do it the disservice of saying that that was representative of the documentary as a whole. There's certainly much more to the argument than that, but that's at least a sampling of what one can expect from that documentary, and uh, talking about the technical way in which the faking of the moon landing footage was achieved, or at least in Jay Widener's uh, theory was achieved. And it is a compelling argument. There's certainly a lot to be considered there, so I won't dismiss it out of hand. But for those people out there in the crowd who think that this is crazy conspiracy theorizing, would you be surprised to learn that in 2002, a French documentary filmmaker was able to put together a documentary detailing this very, uh, very secret operation and the de secret details of how this was accomplished with the participation of Stanley Kubrick's own wife, Christiane, but also with the likes of people like Alexander Haig, Donald Rumsfeld, and Henry Kissinger. Then one of the presidential advisors, I don't know, General Alexander Haig or Donald Rumsfeld, said hesitantly, um, what if we film the first steps on the moon in a studio? Then if we fail, we can always show those pictures to the public. I talked to the president and Kissinger supported it. And at first I didn't take it very seriously and I was told not to take it very seriously. Then it kept going on and on and on. The president was prepared to do so and I was prepared to support that. And that was decided basically by Henry, Al Haig, and the Secretary of Defense. But in the last analysis, the only person that could make the decision to do A, B, or C is the President of the United States under our system. And he would have to order it done. Nixon settled back in his chair and closed his eyes for a few minutes. And then he stood up and said, gentlemen, you have less than two weeks to get everything prepared. That was big. That was a big idea. It was a, an important thing, and a lot of effort went into it. It was an anguishing decision for President Nixon to make. And I think he made the right decision. 
he was the president and he deserves the credit for having had the courage to do it. He did that on his own. Sensible thing to do. Then he came over to me and picked up all my notes, ripped them up into little pieces and threw them in the wastebasket. No stage in my life could I ever have anticipated that this would happen. At no stage, not even when I was made national security advisor. And I think it is a great symptom of the strength of America that this was even conceivable. I thought it was the right thing to do because we have to do something to show that we're still the United States of America. We walked out of the room and, and President Nixon said, uh, I've decided to do that and I need you to do this job. We're going to do it. It was just amazing. So we were trying to figure out who, who would do what when. He simply has got to have the person he wants in that job. And it has to be someone who's capable of doing it. And it has to be somebody he knows well. I said, I'd like to talk to one person. And he said, who? Donald Rumsfeld was the first to propose Stanley Kubrick. The film would have to be perfect, but the set could never be built in time. The filming of 2001, A Space Odyssey, was drawing to a close in a suburb of London. Why not use the sets there? Rumsfeld was sure that Kubrick would not refuse. During the Kennedy administration, the White House had granted him special authorization to access strategic areas of the Pentagon during the preparations for the film Dr. Strangelove. Kubrick owed them. I told Mr. Nixon, it's very dangerous to lie in the United States. You can't pull a con like that in a democracy. Too many people would talk. It would be absurd. But he said, almost sadly, go ahead anyway. Rumsfeld offered to go and negotiate personally with Stanley Kubrick. He and Henry Kissinger flew to England that same evening. Kubrick was surprised and amused by the idea, but began by refusing. Rumsfeld wouldn't give up. We're only asking you to do one thing. Just leave us the keys to the studio for one weekend, just so we can shoot a bit of film and take a few shots. Everything will be tidied up again by Monday morning. Kissinger flattered him, telling him that Dr. Strangelove was one of Nixon's favorite films. In the end, Kubrick agreed. The fake footage would be shot in England in the MGM studios near Boreham Wood with a skeleton crew. The two technicians and two actors would be CIA agents. To guarantee their trustworthiness, all had to be single men without family ties. They would sign a contract committing themselves to perpetual silence about the whole affair. Once the filming was over, they would have to disappear. But Stanley Kubrick was a perfectionist. Faced with the CIA crew's lack of professionalism, he ended up, against his better judgment, supervising the shooting of the fake moonwalk. But, he told them, from Monday morning, you're out of my life for good. My goodness, that is somebody. He is impressive, and he is a, a balanced, rational man, and he also has some courage to say that, what he'd said. And from there on, it played out exactly as he suggested. He had very great common sense. He was a very uh, dedicated personality, and my relations with him were wonderful. Absolutely unbelievable, wouldn't you say? And that is a very good word to use because it should not be believed. In fact, of course, this was a fake documentary or a mockumentary as it's uh, touted. And I will put in a link so you can read more about the production of this fake documentary. But suffice it to say that uh, many of the people who were participating in this documentary were actors reading from scripts, or even in the case of Christian and some of the others who were intimately associated with Stanley, were willingly and knowingly participating in the production of this fake documentary, reading a script that had been provided to them. And some of the outtakes, for example, are provided at the end of the documentary for those who didn't pick up on it. Although clues are liberally sprinkled throughout that production, including the uh, use of interview footage with such people as astronaut Dave Bowman, and uh, there's another uh, movie producer called Jack Torrance, and other sly references to the fact that this is not real, and this is all a wink and a nod to those out there who have put forward the theory that Kubrick was behind the moon landings. I think it's interesting in and of itself that they use, for example, outtakes from uh, interviews with Kissinger and Rumsfeld, who obviously are not talking about the Operation Loon, as it's called in the French original, uh, but are clearly talking about other subjects, but they've been spliced into this documentary in a way that makes it look like they're talking about the uh, the operation to fake the moon landings, etc. It's interesting those particular figures were used. It's also 
particularly interesting that Stanley Kubrick's own wife was involved in the production, which either means that this is an elaborate cover-up of the cover-up, insofar as this is trying to retroactively mock all of those people who have uncovered actual clues towards the possible faking of the moon landing, which is a meta-level mind something or other, if you know what I'm saying, uh, absolutely in and of itself, but uh, but also the, the idea that this could be Stanley Kubrick's wife participating in the mockery of this uh, legend about Stanley Kubrick in a way that in itself may be Kubrickian, perhaps fitting in with his sense of humor. Now, as I say, there is more to the Jay Widener and others who are putting forward the theory that uh, that Kubrick was involved in the moon landings. There's more to their theory, so I suggest you explore them at your own length. One thing that I find particularly interesting and, and quite uh, quite startling in many ways are the very many parallels between Kubrick's works and the sly mentions and and allusions to the moon landings in those works. Specifically, as Widener points out in his work, his classic 1980 horror masterpiece, The Shining. At this point in the film, we graphically discover the nature of the deal that Jack really has cut with the manager of the Overlook. It is the most crucial scene in the film. Danny is in a hallway playing with his trucks. Please note that the carpet has these strange hexagonal patterns in them with a long line in front of the hexagonal pattern. Now look at these pictures of launch pad 39 at Cape Canaveral and see that their launch pads look very similar to the patterns on the carpet that Danny is playing on. Also please note that Danny is playing with trucks and it looks almost as if the trucks and everything are on the launch pad surrounding the rocket. But where is the rocket? Suddenly out of nowhere, the Overlook Hotel rolls the tennis ball from nowhere, the tennis ball that Jack lost earlier. It is a gesture, and the gesture says, Wanna play? Mystified by where the ball came from, Danny stands up and the audience finally sees what the nature of the secret project is really about. As Danny stands up, the answer is revealed in an instant. Danny is wearing a sweater with a crudely sewn rocket pictured on the front. Above the rocket, clearly seen on Danny's sweater, are the words, Apollo 11. The audience watching the film literally sees the launch of Apollo 11 right before their eyes as Danny rises up from the floor. It isn't the real launch of Apollo 11. It is, of course, the symbolic launching of Apollo 11. In other words, it isn't real. What happens next is crucial to understanding everything else that happens in this film. Danny, bewildered, walks down the hallway. He sees that room 237, the room that Halloran warned him about, has a key in the lock and the door is wide open. It is important to note that the room in question was number 217 in the Stephen King version of The Shining. For reasons unknown, Kubrick changed it to 237. Those unknown reasons are about to become known. Danny is literally carrying a symbolic Apollo 11 on his body via the sweater to the moon as he walks over to room 237. Why do I think this? Because the average distance from the Earth to the moon is 237,000 miles. Now some people may argue with this and say that it's actually 238,000 miles and change. The moon is in a slightly elliptical orbit, which means sometimes the moon is much further away from the Earth than in other times. If you do the math and you figure it out, you can see that the true distance that the moon is from the Earth is 237,000 miles. Even more important to this argument, at the time that Kubrick faked the Apollo moon landings, it was common knowledge in the textbooks and the scientific work that the moon was 237,000 miles away from the Earth. This is the figure that Stanley was working with, and that is why he changed the room from 217 to 237. The real truth is that this movie is really about the deal that Stanley Kubrick made with the manager of the Overlook Hotel, America. This deal was to get Stanley to recreate, in other words, to fake the Apollo moon landings. Danny represents the artistic side of Kubrick. Because of the complexity of the artistic realization of the manner in which the lunar landings needed to appear, Kubrick needed to trust his artistic side. 
Room 237 represents the fake lunar set that Stanley had to create to make the lunar landings appear factual. But really, on this set and in this room, nothing is real. As the film will soon reveal, Room 237 has to be lied about. It cannot be understood at all, ever. Nothing real ever happens in Room 237. When Danny opens up the door to room 237, we see the tag attached to the key. And if you just look at the capital letters on the tag, you can see that it says room, R-O-O-M, and then N, and there's a small O. If we discard the small O, we're left with R-O-O-M and N. You can actually get two words out of it. And those two words are moon room so here we have the tag attached to the key it's in the door in room 237 and the letters on the tag come out to say moon room is this what stanley called the lunar set well once again that is certainly not all of the presentation that mr widener has to make on that subject so once again i will direct you to his work kubrick's odyssey so that you can watch more and decide for yourself i think that's a, certainly a compelling argument that he makes about that scene specifically and of course danny wearing the apollo 11 shirt is uh, something of a, a textual clue especially when we know that stanley kubrick did not include shots in his work by accident given the attention to detail that he put on every single aspect of every frame of his movies, even to the absurd lengths of, uh, of maintaining continuity in chess matches in, in some of his uh, works that couldn't actually even be seen on screen and, and some of the other things that he, that he did. Uh, I think we know that he very, very calculatedly thought about each and every single frame of every piece of uh, what was going on in the set. So the idea that something, a detail like that, would just be thrown in by happenstance, well, certainly there is some, I think, playing uh, uh, around on that theme going on there. And as I say, I think that that part specifically of Kubrick's Odyssey does a good job of drawing out some of those implications. Uh, it's it's certainly a compelling argument. And if, for example, the changing of the room number to 237 if it is along the lines of what Mr. Widener is suggesting, that certainly makes sense, and it actually helps to explain something that is truly, at this point, unless we go with that explanation, inexplicable. And if you do turn to, for example, NASA, they will tell you that the di average distance to the moon is 238,500 and change miles, not 237,000, as Mr. Widener is claiming. But, for example, if you go to Wikipedia, the bastion of truthiness, and take the uh, numbers that they provide for the perigee and apogee of the moon's orbit and average them out, lo and behold, 237,000. And uh, I have no way of parsing the claim that uh, textbooks used, used to use the 237,000 mile uh, figure, and that's why Kubrick would have used that. I don't know whether or not that's true. So perhaps someone out there in the audience with access to old uh, textbooks that might have a number like that would be able to, to prove one way or another hopefully with uh, photographic evidence, that would be great. But certainly it's a compelling argument if we can take it at face value. But I think we also have to keep our skeptical uh, thinking caps on as well with this, obviously, as with every piece of information that we take on board. And uh, just for an example of things that we have to be thinking about, for example, uh, there's a, an article that Jay Widener wrote back a, a few years ago called How Stanley Kubrick Faked the Apollo Moon Landings. That seems to be pretty much a, a working rough draft of the script of what became Kubrick's Odyssey with some of the very same lines, for example, that he uses in the narration of that documentary being first used here in this article. So I think he was working for, uh, on this as, as sort of the rough draft of his thesis. And in this article, for example, he has this uh, passage talking about Kubrick's uh, association with NASA. Quote, no one knows how the powers that be convinced Kubrick to direct the Apollo landings. Maybe they had compromised Kubrick in some way. The fact that his brother, Raoul Kubrick, was the head of the American Communist Party may have been one of the avenues pursued by the government to get Stanley to cooperate, end quote. Now, if you are shocked as I am by that little tidbit of knowledge, because I only came across that for the first time ever in the researching of this episode, 
you will be somewhat relieved to note that that seems to be completely made up. Uh, there is, as far as I can ascertain, no Raoul Kubrick. Uh, certainly in any official biography of uh, Stanley Kubrick, he only has one sister named Barbara, as he mentioned at the beginning of uh, the, the clip that we listened to at the beginning of today's episode. And there's no mention of a brother, no mention of any tie to the American Communist Party. So that seems to have been plucked out of thin air. As far as I can tell, that source is back to an even older uh, conspiracy type uh, entry on, on some random blog about uh, Kubrick's connection to the moon landings, uh, but there is no source for, of anything that I can tell of this Raoul Kubrick's existence. And, uh, and uh, tellingly, I think Mr. Widener leaves that out of the Kubrick's Odyssey. Uh, he doesn't, in he includes the, the sentences around that in the narration of that documentary, but he leaves that one out specifically, presumably because it's not true, something that Mr. Widener found out after the fact. So that's to his credit. If he finds something out to be flawed and takes it out of his argument, that's certainly to his credit. But again, it sh shows that perhaps we have to be questioning each and every single thing that we're hearing, including random facts like, oh, textbooks used to say 237,000 miles was the average distance to the moon. May or may not be the case, and it may or may not be a Roman Aklef uh, type of key that we can use to open up the, the mystery of The Shining. But as with any, I think, great work of art, and certainly the works of Stanley Kubrick, it's probably much too limiting to assume that everything does revolve around this one secret that will suddenly unlock this uh, this very complex body of work in, in in numerous different ways. And I think we can see, in, in various other parts of Kubrick's Odyssey, we can see Widener's argument becoming a bit strained, and everything revolving around the Apollo 11 starts to... Well, there are certain points at which it does not, it seems like pure speculation rather than something that's based on, on something tangible, like, for example, 237 or what, what have you. So I think, again, we have to take it with a grain of salt, but I would not say that this should put you off exploring Widener's work. I think he's done some very, very fascinating work on these movies, and I think it is worth at least contemplating because I think there are a lot of very interesting things surrounding the, the moon landings and, and NASA in general, and uh, this tends to go off into topics that we will not cover specifically today because we're talking specifically about Kubrick, but uh, I don't want to do the disservice of touching on them tangentially. I think they deserve a podcast episode of their own. So I will uh, I will just leave you on that note that we will in the future explore more about the secret space pro program and NASA's connections to the Nazis and the Nazis' uh, uh, advanced technology programs all very fascinating subjects that we shall explore at a future date. And I will also direct you, I'll put in the links, uh, the show notes for today's episode, I will put a link to uh, a very fascinating interview that Widener did on Red Ice Radio, where he started to get into such things as the, the, the Saturn cult and other very interesting aspects of uh, 2001 and how that uh, diverges. Uh, a very, very, very interesting conversation that, again, I think we will try to explore in uh, future in future episodes of this podcast and perhaps in interviews with Mr. Widener himself. But on that note, just to flesh out what I'm saying here, I'm saying that there are many different ways to interpret a great work of art, especially something as complex as The Shining or any of other of the other Kubrick masterpieces. And as an example of that, and to demonstrate that point, let's take a look at a fascinating explication of The Shining by Rob Ager, or Ager, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, who is a YouTube commentator. Uh, he has a website called Collative Learning. I'll, of course, put the link in the show notes so that you can follow that. He does a lot of very interesting movie analysis and articles. Uh, a lot about Kubrick. He has quite a few articles on Kubrick specifically, so I'll direct you to that. But let's take a look at an interesting analysis that he does of The Shining that he really starts and uses the basis for this analysis, the famous, infamous shot of, uh, of the party at the end of Kubrick, that, uh, at the end of The Shining, which shows Jack Torrance in, in the crowd at the party scene in the 1920s, somehow implying some sort of, perhaps he was absorbed by the hotel, perhaps he was reincarnated from someone in the hotel, whatever the mystical significance of that is. The actual photograph itself is very interesting because as Ager shows in his documentary, and if you're listening to the podcast, I suggest you go to the video because I'll show, uh, I'll show this on the screen. The, uh, the, the picture itself was composed from an actual picture from the 1920s, according to the records in the Stanley Kubrick archives that Mr. Ager has apparently been to and actually perused. And uh, this picture uh, Kubrick took, and then he took a, a, a photograph that he took of Jack Nicholson and imposed, superimposed that face on the picture. 
So a very interesting process for arriving at that, and it must have been an extremely detailed process of getting the right angle and the right distance and the right lighting and the right granularity of the film, etc., to effectively superimpose that so that you really can't tell where Jack ends and where the uh, the original photo begins. It's quite, uh, in and of itself, something quite uh, amazing and something we would expect from a, a photographic genius, as Kubrick was as well. But the interesting part of this photo is that the person who is most identifiable in the picture, directly behind Jack, who is grabbing his arm as it, apparently there's something, there's some note in Jack's hand that, uh, that it seems that the person behind him is trying to prevent him from showing... Apparently, the person behind him is Woodrow Wilson, former president of the United States. Now, this, uh, again, I'll let you decide for yourself. You can take a look on screen on the uh, video version of this podcast where I'll show uh, the, the photographs that, uh, that Ager is working from to make his argument that this is, in fact, a photo of Woodrow Wilson, which I think there's something to it, but I would be highly skeptical, although... There are also surrounding this person, there are some women, and uh, they are identifiable or seem to be identifiable as Woodrow Wilson's wife and daughter. And so it does start to stack up that this might, in fact, be Woodrow Wilson in this picture, which would make sense because the actual hotel that the uh, the Overlook was modeled on and that they used for the exterior shots uh, of the, uh, the hotel was, in fact... Um, a real hotel that, that did, in fact, host many uh, very high-level functions as the Overlook Hotel in this in the story supposedly did. So so could this be an actual photo of Woodrow Wilson at some party in some, you know, in some way connected with this hotel? It certainly could be, in fact. So it's an interesting point, and I think from that, Mr. Ager makes a very interesting argument. So what does Woodrow Wilson have to do with The Shining? So what's the significance of the Wilson family? Well, Woodrow Wilson was the US president who passed the Federal Reserve Act in 1913, handing over all control of America's banking systems to the privately owned Federal Reserve Bank. And several of the figures in the crowd were directly associated with the Federal Reserve. But the big important detail in all this is gold. After its creation, the Federal Reserve got to work on getting America's monetary system off of the gold standard, eventually replacing it with hyperinflationary fiat money. Fiat money is money declared by government as legal tender, but which is not backed by tangible assets like gold and silver. This is why Kubrick has included a gold room in the Overlook architecture. He also includes several other sly references to monetary policy. Say, Lloyd, it seems I'm temporarily late. <laughs> How's my credit in this joint, anyway? Your credit's fine, Mr. Torrance. No charge to you, Mr. Torrance. No charge? Your money's no good here. The bill that Jack is holding is a 1950 issue of a $20 note. The difference between Jack's money and the money of the historical era that he is in is that his money is not redeemable in gold. Gold convertibility was the origin of Western paper money and gold and silver were deemed in the US Constitution as the only legal tender. Every piece of paper money was simply a receipt which the bearer could swap in at the bank for an equivalent amount of gold or silver. But thanks to the creation of the Federal Reserve, Jack's 1950 issue note is not redeemable in gold. Stanley Kubrick as secret proto-Ron Paul goldbug and anti-fiat currency crusader? Well, it's not as outlandish as it may seem at first blush, and once again I will direct you to the full series of videos there from Rob Ager so that you can go through them yourself and uh, evaluate the evidence. Certainly the gold room and other such interesting uh, scenes from The uh, the Shining do add up in that direction, so it's not an altogether implausible argument. And at the very least, it goes to show that there are certainly other interpretations of secret hidden levels of meaning in such complicated works as The Shining than simply that it was all about Apollo 11. In fact, there was even uh, one commentator that I saw that was pointing out that as Kubrick's 11th film, there was a number of references to 11, and Apollo 11 would be a natural uh, reference to throw in there. So, And that was... Uh, 
followed up with with analysis of other movies showing the nine popping up in Clockwork Orange, his ninth film, etc. So there is something to to that theory as well. I mean, there are lots and lots of different ways to interpret this. So so I think we have to keep our minds open and uh, open to a lot of different possibilities. But the idea that Kubrick was an insider and that he did have an insider's knowledge of things that are going that were going on in the world from a broader perspective and one that uh, you and I are not privy to in our everyday lives is something that is pretty much taken for granted amongst the conspiracy community, so-called, and uh, and something that very few, I think, would really dispute in a thoroughgoing, thoroughgoing way. And just as an example of that, we have the smarmy John Ronson, who I've uh, uh, referenced before in this podcast, who uh, himself was somehow kind of tied up with Kubrick. After Kubrick's death, he got access to Kubrick's uh, archives to make a documentary about them, etc. So he's written quite a few times on Kubrick, and on August 18th, 2010, he wrote uh, after Stanley Kubrick, talking about the disintegration of the Kubrick family in the wake of Stanley's death, and how his daughter Vivian eventually became embroiled with Scientology and now no longer talks with the family, etc., etc. All very interesting. Well, in the middle of that article, there's a very interesting quote from Kubrick's uh, widow, Christiane, talking about Stanley and his, uh, his philosophy, his political philosophy, perhaps. She said, quote, all Stanley's life, he said, never, ever go near power. Don't become friends with anyone who has real power. It's dangerous. Well, an intriguing little quotation, and certainly one that would play into a uh, at least the possibility of a conspiratorial view of the world held by Stanley, and one that would also play into the fact that he was such a recluse and that he did keep to himself on his estate in England to the point where most people didn't even know what he looked like, etc., despite being one of the most lauded filmmakers in the history of cinema. Quite an achievement in this day and age, I think you'll agree. So what does that quote refer to, and what exactly, why does he have this distrust of power? Very good questions, but that it was there and that it had something to do with such uh, such works, for example, as Eyes Wide Shut can probably not be disputed. Once again, Eyes Wide Shut being one of the very key cornerstone movies that people come back to when they talk about reasons that Stanley Kubrick may or may not have been gotten rid of for trying to expose various secrets that he may or may not have been privy to. And again, this is an entire topic in and of itself, which would do with some great elaboration. But for some elaboration on the general gist of this idea, let's go to one of the sources that is probably most widely known and seen online on this topic. Uh, his name is Kent Daniel Betkowski, Betkowski, and he was interviewed in Red Ice Radio in January 2007, talking about his ideas of what the Eyes Wide Shut really was all about. Well, I'd like to begin by saying that uh, most people who see this movie do not understand what they're looking at, and there's a reason for it. The Illuminati uh, deal with symbolism that is hidden to the larger population, and they frequently talk about those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. Mm. And what that means is that the inside initiates are able to decode this symbolism and understand what they're looking at. So I applied my 27 years of research on this uh, group of people and applied it to the film. And one thing I'd like to begin with is that Stanley Kubrick himself was a high-level mystery school initiate. Mm -hmm. So that explains how that symbolism got into that movie in the first place. Do you think that Kubrick was, you know, trying to, um, I guess, you know, re reveal some of these secrets, or, or, or is there some other reason why, you know, constantly we are being you know, confronted with this kind of symbolism, um, as you say? My personal belief is, is that he was trying to reveal some of this symbolism to the larger population. And just like we saw with Mozart and his magic flute, yeah, yeah. which um, revealed inside secrets of the Freemasonic uh, movement, mm -hmm. um, Stanley Kubrick also had this revelation 
in his film Eyes Wide Shut, which basically um, saw him quickly um, die under mysterious circumstances, yeah. which occurred only four days after he turned in the final print of the film to Warner Brothers. Hmm. Well, and what was it? Was it a heart attack? Do, do we know that, what it was? It was stated publicly as a heart attack. Hmm. However, I've done research into this, and his wife was completely surprised by his death. He was not under any strain in terms of heart disease, and it was a shock to his family friends and professional co-workers yeah uh, was it and please correct me if I'm wrong here but wasn't was it you who wrote a paper on that was called how how the elite creates heart attacks yes that's uh, correct yeah. <laughs> um, that article was entitled how the globalists create heart attacks oh, okay yeah hmm. and that was published August 16th 2005 hmm um, my point at that time was there had been over a hundred microbi microbiologists over the past several years who had died under very unusual circumstances, and they all were known as heart attacks mm. to the public uh, in the public news media. And basically what I did is I went and I interviewed someone who worked in a heart telemetry unit and I interviewed this nurse and asked her how could they create a heart attack, what type of uh, chemicals would they use, what type of drugs would they use that would leave no sort of a trace afterwards. Hmm. Interesting and uh, um, so, so you think? Do you think that he was, you know, t taken out, so to speak? Uh, yes, I do. Mm. And the reason that I do think that this occurred was that there is some very unusual math that went along with uh, his uh, murder. And basically, at that point. Um, uh, Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, okay. I'm sorry. No, no problem. <laughs> um, his date of um, death was March 7th, 1999. He mm. turned in the final print of Eyes Wide Shut four days earlier on March 3rd, 1999. Now, if you go from the date he died, which was March 7th, 1999, and we go forward to the first day of the most famous film this man ever made, 2001, A Space Odyssey, mm -hmm. we come up with the date, January 1st, 2001. Hmm. The number of days between March 7th, 1999 and January 1st, 2001, were exactly 666 days. Oops. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, that is a coincidence hmm. that I'm not entirely sure is entirely coincidental. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, whenever you see these built-in numerology codes into specific events, uh, for instance, all the incidents of the number 11, mm, yeah. the September 11th attacks, yeah. it becomes less and less of a coincidence, each one of these that you dig up. Some intriguing stuff, to be sure, but I personally caution against going a little too overboard or too in-depth with the numerological references, because... Uh, having been in, involved in the production of the Corbett Report for five years and involved in this research for six years now, I cannot even count 
Ironically enough, I can't even count how many times I've seen predictions of various events that are going to happen because of numerological significance and the elite's alleged obsession with numerology, which may or may not be the case, but I've seen so many people try to predict various things. Certainly something will happen on 6-6-2006 or the 7-7-2007 uh, the attack that was absolutely going to happen, or there was 11-9-2011 uh, and 11-11-2011 and all sorts of predictions. Literally, I've seen more than I can count, and every single one of them has spectacularly failed to come true. And uh, I think that shows that at the very least, to whatever extent numerology may be behind as some sort of secret, hidden background to, to these events that are taking place, it is not as straightforward as simply understanding that and then being able to predict what's going to happen. I don't think there's any evidence of that ability whatsoever. But uh, certainly we can actually take a look at the facts. And yes, the fact is that Stanley Kubrick did die precisely 666 days before January 1st, 2001, of course, the beginning of the year that he made famous with 2001, uh, March 7th, 1999. Again, make of that what you will. Perhaps more importantly, it was precisely four days after having shown the final cut, his final cut of Eyes Wide Shut to the producers at Warner Brothers. And uh, precisely four days later, he died of a heart attack, which was a shock to his family and everyone who knew him because he did not have a history of heart trouble. So he was an old man and uh, certainly heart attacks happen, but was there something untoward about this? Well, may or, that may or may not be the case. I have heard it said numerous times by numerous individuals that uh, that after having shown his complete final cut to Warner Brothers, they then edited the film uh, for its final release later that year. And that may or may not be the case. Certainly we do know that there were digital insertions in the final cut uh, to hide some of the naughty bits during the orgy scene. And that, that is very much uh, the case. Um, but the extent to which there were other edits made to the movie, I don't, I don't know of a source, an authoritative source that has confirmed that and confirmed what types of cuts may or may not have been made. Uh, all I know is that absolutely there were insertions into the, into the image to try to cover up some of the scenes there and some of the, the naughty bits, as I say. But I don't know, I don't have any authoritative source. All I have is lots of people repeating the idea that the executives did uh, edit his work after his death. If that's the case, that's certainly something intriguing. But again, I would like to go with something more authoritative. So if you have some authoritative information, a source that can be taken reliably, firsthand, preferably, about uh, the, the fact that those types of changes were made, by all means, get in touch with me through CorbettReport.com. I'd be fascinated to know more about that. But certainly the idea that, uh, that Kubrick was uh, letting things slip a little bit with eyes wide shut and, and letting people in on the secrets is not something we would have to step too far on a limb out on to, uh, to, to see, especially for anyone who has watched the movie and the very deeply disturbing points that, uh, that, that are brought up by that uh, movie, very psychologically disturbing. And the idea that this may not be so much an allegory as a description of what happens at the upper, upper levels of power is, I think, for everyone who understands what's going on in the world global globalist power structure is probably the most chilling part of all, the idea that this is not so fictional as we might like to think. Again, many, 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 many other points to be made about this movie and all of the other Kubrick movies, but at the very least, I hope we've opened up the doorway on this conversation and shown that there is very serious levels of, of programming in very different ways going on in movies like this. It's important to be aware of them and important to know that also not necessarily the, the Hollywood insiders may not necessarily be happy about going along with that, and they may be trying to reveal some of the secrets and that may or may not have cost some of them their lives. Again, a lot of food for thought and a lot of things to think about. But on that note, let's just throw in a couple of more references uh, to uh, leave people to, with something to think about. First of all, we note the 666 days between Stanley Kubrick's death and the dawning of 2001 and the, uh, the space odyssey. Well, uh, there's also a, a post that I'll put a link to in the show notes proclaiming a number of 666s that crop up in various ways in the, uh, the time sequences of 2001. Some of them very interesting, some of them quite unbelievable. In, uh, in If they are true, that's amazing. I haven't personally confirmed them all yet. I'll let you go and do that if you're so inclined. The only one that I could very easily uh, prove or disprove is the one that says there were 666 seconds if you add up the time in, in the overture and the final end credits slash uh, exit music of 2001. There are precisely 666 seconds which, as far as I can tell from my copy of uh, 2001, is not the case. So 
take it all with a grain of salt and check it for yourself before believing it. But if there are 666s encoded into 2001, that's certainly interesting in and of itself. And here's another one which is also verifiable and pretty interesting. As everyone knows, Stanley Kubrick had complete, total creative control over his movies, something that in and of itself is uh, something that should raise the eyebrows of people out there and know how the Hollywood machine works. How did Kubrick ever arrive at the point where he could call the shots on literally every aspect of his movies? That in and of itself implies some degree of uh, power or coming near the Ring of Mordor, which uh, presumably he he grasped at a certain point in his career. And whether that had to do with the moon landing or not, again, I'm not here to definitively state. But uh, but he did have a- aspect over everything, including even uh, the not only the ways that the, his trailers were cut, but even the, the types of newspaper advertisements and things that would run for his movies. Uh, he controlled every aspect of it, including, of course, what date his movies were released on. And Eyes Wide Shut's release date? July 16th, 1999. 30 years to the day after the launch of Apollo 11. Make of it what you will, folks. But on that note, I'm going to leave you today, as always, to explore this topic with your own research and to supplement with your own findings. And when you do find out more about these various subjects, by all means, write them into me. I'm always interested to know about your findings out there. And on that note, I'll leave you there for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me for this episode of the Corbett Report podcast and inviting you to join me again next week for another edition. Under the Masonic Moon Plans were made by the bankers in the back room Get the president out of the way And hire Stanley Coon Under the Masonic Moon Under the Masonic